Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to come here every Sunday, to hear it taught, to discuss it, to wonder how it applies to our lives, to learn about you. And God, um, we're going through an amazing story of Joseph, learning how you have worked in history, Lord, to bring your purposes about. And God, we pray that you'll guide us in that endeavor today, that your spirit would guide our conversation, that it would be fruitful and edifying, that when correcting is needed, it would be done in gentleness and love. And Lord, that um, even in passages like, like today's that seem kind of in between the main story, um, that we'll see there's a lot to learn about you and about ourselves. And so please reveal that to us now. Guide me as I teach. Guide each one of us as we discuss. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Hey, it worked. We've got some more people. <laughs> it always works. We're in uh, Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Ah. <laughs> 42. Give you a second to turn there. Okay. Now we are still in the story of Joseph. Genesis chapters 42 through 45 are kind of their own unit where we are seeing kind of the climax of the Joseph story come together. Um, So last week we went through chapter 41 where the king of Egypt had two bad dreams that no one could interpret. And the cupbearer that Joseph helped finally remembered Joseph after two years um, that he could interpret dreams. So Joseph came before Pharaoh out of prison and interpreted the dreams that no one else could interpret. Hey, Skip. God had given them the solution to the dreams, and God was telling Pharaoh that there would be seven years of bounty followed by seven years of severe famine. In order to prepare for the famine, Egypt would need to store up 20% of its harvest for the first seven years. And Pharaoh decided to put Joseph in charge of this endeavor because Joseph had demonstrated himself to be uh, wise and capable, but most of all guided by the Spirit of God. Um, Joseph becomes, once again, number two in a household, except this time it's Pharaoh's household, making him the, uh, I think it's safe to say, the second most powerful man in the known world. Joseph is given an Egyptian name, Egyptian title, Egyptian clothes, and an Egyptian wife, and he has two sons, but he gives those two sons Hebrew names, um, recalling the Lord's goodness to him. Anybody remember his son's names? Yeah, that's right, Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah, I think if we named our kids that today, we might call it Ephraim, I guess, now. But Ephraim is a better way to say it, I think. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh, good. So everyone is flocking to Egypt from nearby lands because they are the only ones with food, and they have to buy the food from Joseph, which sets us up for the events in chapter 42. So, let's begin. Verses, chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, 
he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Um, Okay. So now that Joseph has been established in his role in Egypt, we are now back with Jacob and his sons. Okay, so far, for a long time, it's been with Joseph. What has happened to him after he was sold into slavery, um, thrown into prison, and we've been following him this whole time. And now we're finally coming back to Egypt. Does anybody know about how many years has it been? Okay, we know that it was 13 years from since he was sold into slavery into the events of last chapter. So up till now, about how many years would it have been? Say that again. So 13 years last chapter, and then we have the years of famine. Right? How many years was that? Seven. So about 20. And then if we're into the years of... Oh, we had the years of bounty first. Sorry. Now we're into the years of famine. Thanks, Jim. Um, you know, maybe we're in the beginning of it. Maybe it's a couple years in. So maybe 20 22 years since he's left, um, since he was sold. But now it's been that long. And we're finally seeing what's going on with Jacob and his family. Um, So even after 20, 22 years, Jacob is still the patriarch of the family. And it's still his responsibility to make sure that they are provided for. Jim, you gave us an an interpretation earlier of uh, why do you look at one another? What what was he saying there? Why are you standing around staring at each other? Do something. That's a, that's a, you get that kind of feeling when he says that. It's a, you get the idea that there's a famine, and then there's these ten sons who are farmers who have no idea what to do. And so Jacob's uh, is saying, why are you just standing around? Um, Alter notes the almost excessive spelling out in Jacob's words, that he says that we may live and not die, may reflect his impatience with his sons, who are acting as though they did not grasp the urgency of the situation. Okay, so Jacob, like all the rest of the land, will have to buy grain from Egypt because of the severe famine. We talked about that last week. What Joseph, like Joseph is the one that you have to buy the grain from. And if everybody has to come to him, that means that there's going to be an encounter that we've been waiting for for a long time. Verse 3. So, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, so the first thing I notice is that the narrator calls the ten men Joseph's brothers. Right? He doesn't call them Jacob's sons, even though we're just talking about Jacob. And it's, in the, it's pointing us to the interaction that Joseph is going to have with his brothers shortly. It's preparing us for that coming encounter. So Jacob sends all the sons except for Benjamin. What is so special about Benjamin? He's Joseph's brother. He's his youngest brother. Okay. Jim is saying, Jim and Joan are saying, um, Joseph's brother, youngest child from Rachel. From Rachel. Good. That's what's important. Um, what happens? Uh, during the birth of Benjamin. Yeah, she died. Okay, so Benjamin is Rachel's last son, as far as Jacob is concerned, um, because he believes Joseph is dead. 
So she, as the last son of uh, his beloved wife, Rachel, he is not willing to send him with his brothers to Egypt. Okay, so we see Jacob is showing still favor to the sons of Rachel. Um, it makes you wonder, because we're not sure yet, even though we know the story, it makes you wonder how the other brothers viewed and treated Benjamin. Are they going to treat him in the same way that they treated Joseph? Ross notes the mention of possible harm to Benjamin in the midst of the family's attempt to buy grain to live would have put the events of the past in the minds of the brothers. <clears throat> so you'll, you'll notice in verse 5, um, how does it refer, refer to Jacob in verse 5? Or the sons of Joseph, not the sons, the brothers of Joseph. How does it refer to them? Sons of Israel, right? And so we see the back and forth. Like they, the narrator calls Jacob Jacob, and sometimes he calls them Israel. Okay, but by calling the sons of Israel, um, it kind of makes it seem like they are another nation along with the other nations. So instead of just four brothers who don't know what to do, it's almost like an envoy of, from the nation of Israel coming to Egypt. So, uh, among the others who came uh, is, a, is a phrase that indicates a great crowd of people from all the earth driven by the famine to Egypt, where there was food to be bought. And so the picture that's being given is that uh, Joseph's brothers are coming to Egypt, and so is everyone else. Okay, so there's going to be a great crowd, there's going to be nations, everyone's coming to Joseph to buy food, including his brothers. They're mixed up in this whole crowd. All right, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now immediately, what should this remind you of? The dream. The dream. The dream. Good. Um, but Now, is it both dreams? Is this a fulfillment of the dream? Father's not there yet, okay? The sun and the moon aren't there yet, right? From the first two dreams. Stars are there. All the stars except one. The sheaves are there. All the sheaves except one. Um, I'll recount the sheaves dream here. It says in chapter 37, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. That's exactly what's happening here. Um, so the first dream that, dream that Joseph had has finally been fulfilled, or at least has begun to be fulfilled. So, the journey from he, uh, Hebron to Egypt was long. It would have taken about a week for the caravan to arrive. So it's a long journey, especially if... Uh, the brothers' families back home are on the brink of starvation or not having food because of the famine. It's a long journey. It's an important one. They need to get back. I wonder if, if there were that many people coming. They all came to Joseph. He was pretty busy. Yeah, Joseph was a pretty busy guy. You're right. So Jim is wondering if how busy Joseph would have been and how long it would have taken to, for them to meet with uh, Joseph. I'm curious, too. Um, although... I'm sure each nation had a representative, and so maybe it wasn't as many as you might think. And also, I have no idea how many nations there are around Egypt during this time. 
I know of Egypt and I know of the people of Canaan. That's about it right now. <laughs> I'm sure there's more. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now you have to imagine that Joseph seeing his brothers appear before him would be a shock to him, no matter whether or not he was expecting them. Because he's a, he's a smart guy, maybe he was expecting them to some extent. But it would be extremely shocking for him to see them. And so he has this, his immediate response is to speak harshly and treat them like strangers. Um, why wouldn't his brothers be able to recognize Joseph? Let's start there. He's dressed like an Egyptian that had been 20 years. Priscilla, what'd you say? Okay, good. That's right, because he was shaven. They had they shaved everything, possibly bald, possibly wearing one of those black, weird wigs um, that you see in the artist depictions sometimes. Um, so he would have looked completely different. It would have been, what did we say before? What do you say? No, they're not. He's not wearing turbans. It would, it would be like a wig. Um, if he was wearing something. So it's, it's been uh, 20 years or so. It's been a long time. Also, they're not expecting to see Joseph, right? If you, it's hard to recognize someone who looks different if you're not expecting to see him. Um, so there's a lot of reasons, and it's very believable, that we, he, they would not recognize Joseph. But Joseph immediately recognizes them, because although it's been 20 years, um, they were adults when the events of chapter 37 happened. They wouldn't change, but they probably would have looked pretty similar. Um, What's the purpose of verse 8? Good. So let's talk about that. What's the purpose of verse 8? So he repeats what is happening in verse 7. Okay, it's very important. The narrator wants to communicate that they did not recognize him, although he recognized them. Okay, so Joseph has the opportunity to do something here because they don't recognize him. Um, Alter's note here goes along with that, with and he recognized them and played the stranger to them. It says the verb for recognize and the verb for play the stranger are derived from the same root. Both uses both uses pick up thematically prominent repetition of the same root earlier in the story. Jacob was asked to recognize Joseph's blood-soaked tunic, and Tamar invited Judah to recognize the tokens he had left her as security for payment for sexual services. Okay, we can't forget about the story of Judah and Tamar. That's happened too. Um, why would Joseph pretend not to know them? Why would he do that? That... See where their hearts are, gain some wisdom. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be, it, it, it could be just that simple. The shock, not quite sure what to do when he sees his brothers, the, just the mere shock of it. Uh, lots of mixed emotions would be, would be happening too. So he doesn't immediately reveal himself. Um, so Joseph would be able to do with them as he pleased. And he'd be able to get, like you said, an honest 
evaluation of his brothers after so many years? Do they regret what they did to him? Are they loyal to each other, to their father? Have they changed at all? Um, these will be important questions for Joseph and his plans for them. Um, well, like I said, Joseph may be feeling a mixture of emotions raise, ranging from gladness that his dream had finally been fulfilled and seeing his brothers once again to anger and rage that his brothers hated his dream so much that they sold him as a slave. So you can be feeling a mix of things. Go ahead, Jim. We don't see it here, but apparently he was using a translator at this time. It doesn't mention that. That's revealed later. Yeah, it's a... The narrator seems to hold that off for a little while, too. So that would definitely add to the um, not recognizing him part if he's not speaking Hebrew. Okay. Let me see. Where were we? All right. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. What is Joseph accusing them of doing? Being a spy, being a spy, how? Were they, was he trying to get... Right, the nakedness um, indicates vulnerability. They would be especially vulnerable with all these nations coming in, um, wanting to get grain. I think that's exactly right. He's calling them spies because right now, um, if there ever would be spies, it would be now, trying to steal the grain from their stores. Take over the whole land would be pretty challenging, even if uh, even in, in during this time. But, I mean, yeah. Um, so my next question was, does Joseph have any reason to accuse them of being spies? Has the text given us any indication that they would appear to be spies? Or I mean, it doesn't seem like it, right? There, so there's, it's a, like Richard was saying, it's, it's believable that he would say that, but there's no reason for us to see why he would accuse them of all the nations that are coming, these 12 brothers, of being spies, Walke has an, a comment on this that I think is helpful. His accusation would not seem far-fetched to the brothers. Frontier guards at Egypt's Asian border routinely checked travelers to discover spies who might herald an imminent attack. Famished armies could be expected to seek out any weakness in the fortifications in order to plunder stockpiled grain. He's putting them on the defensive, Jones says, immediately, Right. Um, and they would be on the defensive because they are in the weaker position. Joseph is in the position of power. Um, what is their defense against his accusation? They're honest. They're, they're honest. I guess that's a defense. Brothers. <laughs> okay. Brothers. We're brothers. We're brothers. We're brothers, uh, the sons of one man. That's, I think that's their major defense is why would a family send out all their sons to another nation if, um, if they were spies. Why would they risk all of their lives like that uh, to be spies? Go ahead, Richard. 
percentage, you wouldn't send out a dozen people to do it. You'd send out one seed, two seed, three seed. <laughs> They're hiding in plain sight, Richard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wouldn't send out ten. But he makes the accusation. The accusation seems to stick. It seems to drive fear in them. They are immediately defensive. Um, we are sons of one man. And what does Joseph learn in this interaction? How do they lie? Okay. So it's like a it's like a it's like a half truth I would say, right? We got no one is no more. They're not telling the entire truth, but as far as they're concerned, he's no more. Yeah, yeah. I'm comfortable with calling it a lie. Sure. Um, what else? What else do they learn? What else does Joseph learn? So he learns that they think he is no more, or at least they don't know what's happened to him. His father's still alive, and Benjamin's still alive. And where is Benjamin? Okay. Benjamin's with his father at home. Okay, so that's important. He knows why would he send out? Why would his father send out all of his sons except for Benjamin? Right. So he knows that what was going on with him back in the day is now going on with Benjamin, and that's important, right? Because how it makes him wonder how is Benjamin being treated, or maybe he's wondering: Are they telling the truth about Benjamin? Benjamin's not here, right? Did the did they do to Benjamin what they did to me? Are they lying? So, he learns a lot of things. There's a few holes, especially when it comes to Benjamin. So, we'll continue on. Verse 14. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you. You are spies. Okay, so they weren't convincing enough. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother. Well, am I the right? Yes, okay. While your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. The first thing I wonder is if he sends them to the same prison that he had to stay in for, for however many years, right? Yeah, I mean, if he, <laughs> that would be a pretty quick judgment, but it wouldn't be surprising considering the leadership of a lot of these nations. Oh, I see what you're saying. They think that they're going to die. Sure. Yeah, they would be sweating it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so he sends them in the prison, and he, they, his first plan, because this is his first plan, and doesn't stick with this. He imprisons all of his brothers, and he just is going to allow one to make the long, harsh journey, which would be about, oh man, from Egypt to Hebron, like 300 miles, I'm not sure. It took, it took him about a week to get here. Um, all the way back to his father to retrieve the youngest brother. Um, so that's a pretty harsh plan. But like his brothers before him, he decides against his initial plan, and instead goes with a wiser gentler plan for testing uh, his brothers. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, do this, and you will live, for I fear God. 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go out and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. Um, so I think Joseph's land, Joseph's land, Joseph's plan works on both levels here. As an Egyptian official, he's testing, he is testing their honesty about having another brother to see if they are spies. Uh, if they indeed bring back their younger brother, then they are not the spies he claims them to be. But of course, Joseph's true intentions are to test their honesty and their treatment of Rachel's only other son. Um, Alter notes when they say, and your youngest brother shall, you shall bring to me. The test of Benjamin, of bringing Benjamin to Egypt, is actually a test of fraternal fidelity. Joseph may have some lingering suspicion as to whether the brothers have done away with Benjamin, the other son of Rachel, as they imagine they have gotten rid of him. And Walkie notes, when he, he says that you may not die, Joseph knows the amount of grain he has given them will not last the duration of the seven-year famine. They will have to return with Benjamin in order to survive. Um, why does Joseph mention fearing God? Isn't that interesting? It seems like that would throw a red flag up for his brothers. What do you think? Yeah, good, good. So, um, in case you didn't hear, Isaac was saying why he is treating them more fairly than just killing them off, as Richard uh, suggested you would normally do with spies. Why he's treating them this way. He's treating them fairly, and he's sending them off together and only keeping one because he fears God. And so, as one who fears God, he doesn't want to unjustly prosecute the brothers if they are not spies. And I think that's pretty interesting, right? Because that's in contrast to the way that his brothers treated him in chapter 37, isn't it? When they sold him off. Uh, this is, he's giving us, he's demonstrating as an Egyptian official, this, is, this Egyptian official fears God and he knows how to act and behave. And so he's kind of putting that into their minds immediately, the, the fear of God and uh, helping them to remember um, where am I? Yes, okay. I like how Ross puts it. Uh, the threat to Benjamin had surfaced twice now, and this imprisonment would have given them a taste of what Joseph must have experienced. But Joseph's words upon their release from prison were designed to focus their thoughts on God, not just the dilemma they faced over Benjamin. He said, Do this and live, for I fear God. The motif of the fear of God was thus brought into the perplexing events that reminded them of their crime. So it's a pretty smart plan by Joseph, and, uh, and he really is demonstrating himself to be wise. Yes? Yeah, right? Well, they would be polytheistic, right? There would be multiple gods. So, Jim, I think you mentioned that they might have seen the Nile as a god at one point, but Pharaoh certainly would have been viewed as a god. Um, but we also know Pharaoh himself was willing to acknowledge Joseph's god and the role that he played in giving him those dreams. 
Um, so it does stand out, but at the same time, maybe it's maybe it's not as unexpected as we would initially think. I don't know. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, fearing God, man. I feel like there was something else I was going to say, but that's all right. So Joseph has this plan. It's a good plan. Um, let's continue. And they did so. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. Why does Joseph weep? Yes, Marie? Yeah. Of all the emotions that we talked about in the beginning, all the conflicting emotions of seeing his brothers in the beginning. Sure, sure. Well, he doesn't know if he's going to see them yet. He He's trying to get them to bring uh, Benjamin, but he doesn't know yet if Benjamin is alive or if he's going to see them. But you're certainly right. There's there's lots of conflicting emotions that would help him to turn away and weep. But, but what from this particular conversation that he overhears makes him weep? Say that again? He sees their remorse. Yeah, yeah. So the question of do they have they changed... Do they regret what they did? Did they do they see what they did as wrong? That they're they're showing guilt over what they did to him, and I think that's that's why he's weeping, because his brothers are realizing that what they did to him was wrong. Um, yeah, we didn't see, we didn't hear that before, did we? We didn't know about the begging and the pleading. Um, and so it just adds on to that 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 stress and that guilt. Um, Alter notes the psychological success of Joseph's stratagem is confirmed by the fact that the accusation and the hostage taking immediately trigger feelings of guilt over their behavior toward Joseph. Notably, it is only now, not in the original report back in chapter thirty seven, that we learn that Joseph pleaded with them when they cast him into the pit a remarkable instance of withheld narrative exposition. Reuben, who tried to save him, now becomes the chief spokesman for their collective guilt. Okay, and so Jim, like you said, this is the first time we hear of an interpreter. Um, so the entire time, Joseph is speaking Egyptian to them? Is that is it Coptic that they're speaking? I'm not, I forget what, what language it is. It's a foreign language, a foreign language to us and to the, the, the Hebrew men. Um, did someone say something? I thought I heard a, a language yelled out. Never mind. Um, good. So we so we hear for the first time that uh, he is pretending not to understand them, and so in secret you can hear what they're saying. Um, they're speaking hieroglyphics. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What does that sound like, man? <laughs> that sounds about right. They're speaking hieroglyphics. <laughs> Good, all right. <laughs> and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Um, guesses? Why, why Simeon? Anybody know? Do we know, any, what do we, do we know anything about Simeon? Oh, that's right, yeah. Simeon was one of the two that slayed the, uh, after the, what Dinah was Shechem, that slayed the city of Shechem, that's right. Anything else? What, what, uh, where is he in the age? Do you guys remember? I don't necessarily expect you to, I'm just wondering. I think he was the second. I think he was the second, yeah. Um, so if Reuben is the spokesperson, or if Joseph just learned that Reuben was the only one who tried to defend him, then I think Simeon is a logical choice as the next oldest to be in prison. It might be for other reasons, too. Um, but he takes Simeon, he bounds them before their eyes, he makes sure they, that they see it, that he's being bound and in prison. And then they leave, but Joseph gives orders to fill their bags with grain, and then he does something weird. Right, He replaces every man's money in his sack to give them provisions for, <laughs> and to give them provision for the journey. This was done for them. It seems like kind of a nice thing. We'll learn it's really not that nice of a thing. Um, here's a note from Alter. The return of silver is also associated with the brothers' guilt, for it repeats their receiving of silver from the Ishmaelites for the sale of Joseph as a slave. So you see that theme occurring again. Um, let's explore the money issue. Let's go to the next verses. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying... What is this that God has done to us? Okay, so why are they afraid when they see the money in the sack? Okay, so Jim said they can be accused of being thieves. That's exactly right. Okay, so if they're accused of being thieves, what would that, I mean, would that make it more difficult or less difficult to go back to Egypt? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it would make it it would make it more difficult <laughs> um, if they can be accused as thieves how much do they love their brother how much do they care for their brother to go back to Egypt with the threat of being accused as thieves um, so Joseph is is pretty clever um, Walkie notes when they say, what is this that God has done to us? This is the first time the brothers mention God. Their aroused consciences see God at work behind their crime and punishment. And although we obviously know that Joseph is the one who put the money in their bags, we are once again reminded of God's hand in the events of Joseph and his brothers. And throughout this entire story, we just see God working in subtle ways to make enormous things happen. Verse 29, 
We're going to get through this chapter. We're almost there. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, um, notice they still don't know who he is, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Um, okay, so the brothers have the unenviable task of reporting the bad news to Jacob. Um, Jacob does not respond to these things well. Um, so the news could not have gone worse for him in his mind. What's up, James? Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. So, a little bit of irony there. He doesn't know what they did to Joseph, and yet he still blames them for what happened to Joseph. So they still get the blame, even though he doesn't know. Um, Why would he say... Simeon is no more. Simeon's alive. He's back there. <laughs> he, he's not going to see him again? Why, is he, why does he think he's not going to see him again? There you go. If they found out they're thieves and they went back, Simeon would be killed, wouldn't he? They would kill Simeon, I would imagine. Or if they found out now that they're, that they're thieves, Simeon, he, he might assume Simeon's already gone. Mm, good question. Jim asked, why would each son have a sack of money? Not Why wouldn't one just have a great big sack? Well, the great big sack would be hard to carry. I don't know. It's, it's a good question, Jim. I do not know the answer. <laughs> well, they didn't put the money in there. That's good. Yeah, he's... So <laughs> Jacob, I think it's, it's made clear in his speech, he's not ready to give up Benjamin, which means, sorry, Simeon, you're not, you're not Rachel's son. Um, good, that's good. Uh, verse 37, Then Reuben said to his father, kill, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Um, I like Alter's note on this. Reuben, as usual, means well, but stumbles in the execution. To a father obsessed with the loss of sons, he offers the prospect of killing two grandsons. So, you guys have heard the phrase, what a rube? Is that where that comes from? You know, is rube short for Reuben? It makes me wonder. I tried to look this up and I couldn't find out. Um, so, any, if any of you know, just let me know. Um, verse 38. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. 
Um, you might remember how Jacob grieved for Joseph back in 37. In chapter 37, it says, Then Jacob, t- Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. What is Sheol? Generally, when you hear Sheol, what do you associate it with? Place of the dead. I like I like that a little bit better. Um, so the Sheol is associated with the grave. Sometimes the place of the dead, where the where death is, where the where the dead people are. Um, and so he had a very similar reaction that he is having uh, to the idea of losing Benjamin. Um, finally, to end with. Uh, well, not to end completely, but I like uh, altered no- Alter's note here. It says the extravagant insensitivity, insensitivity of Jacob's paternal favoritism continues to be breathtaking. He speaks of Benjamin as my son, almost as though the ones he is addressing were not his sons. This unconscious disavowal of the ten sons is sharpened when Jacob says he alone remains, failing to add from his mother. The histrionic refrain of descending in sorrow to Sheol, the underworld, is one Jacob first recited when he was handed Joseph's blood-stained tunic. Jacob is, of course, fearful of another dreadful accident, like the one in which he believes Joseph was torn to pieces by a wild beast. There is, then, an ironic disparity between Jacob's sense of a world of unpredictable dangers threatening his beloved son and Joseph's providential manipulation of events unguessed by his father and his brother. And that's how it works, isn't it? We're afraid of what's going to happen, and yet at the same time, we know there's a providential hand guiding things. Um, let me end, because we've got to end. Um, what strikes me about this story is that this story could have easily ended in chapter 41, And it really would have been a remarkable story. Um, God uses a young Hebrew man who is unjustly sold as a slave by his brothers and is unjustly thrown into prison um, because of a lie. And he raises this man up to become one of the most powerful men in the world. And then God uses this Hebrew slave to save the known world from a terrible famine. That in itself is a really incredible story about God's salvation from... Uh, physical starvation. But the story doesn't end there. There's more to it. And it won't end there for three more chapters. Um, What we see in this chapter is God moving in small and subtle ways to awaken guilt and shame in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. And in this story, guilt is a good thing. These are the men who are going to be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel And God seems to find it important that they are repentant of their crime against their brother. God does not just care about their physical well-being, but he finds their spiritual growth significant enough to orchestrate the events of the world so that they might be repentant and would eventually reconcile with their brother. Uh, It's easy to forget, with all the circumstances of our lives, that God really cares about our spiritual growth because we're concerned about improving, moving up in our jobs, 
were concerned about um, money, health, all this stuff, very legitimate concerns. But God is often much, much more concerned about our spiritual well-being. And so sometimes that means making you aware of guilt so that you can change, so that you can repent, or so that you can reconcile. God cares about your spiritual growth. Let me end there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for caring for us. And uh, Lord, um, it is easy for us to ignore and forget about the things that you deeply care about. And that's us growing in faith, changing, Lord, um, working to overcome sin, um, becoming more like Christ. Of course, we call that sanctification. And God, we're thankful that you desire that for us, Lord. Um, that you don't just let us sit in our sin, but you want us to grow and to change and to um, experience your sanctification. We're thankful, Lord, for guilt, that you help us to recognize sin and that we need to change by this, this feeling called guilt. And Lord, there's such a thing as false guilt, and that's, of course, we, we, we know that that's not good. And we don't want false guilt. So God, help us to understand things that we should uh, feel guilt for so that we might change. Continue to work through us in your spirit. Thank you for the story of Joseph and his brothers. Continue to help us in understanding it. And this is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.